0: The Guardian.
1: Hello,
2: this is the Business Podcast. I'm Tom Clark at the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester. In the streets outside the conference hall this week, unions have been marching and protesters have been calling for an easing of the government's austerity measures. But
1: inside the hall,
2: George Osborne made it clear... As a famous lady once said, that there'd be no turning back.
1: Don't think I haven't thought hard about what more we could do. That I don't explore every single option. I do. But borrowing too much is the cause of Britain's problems, not the solution. Earlier
2: in the week, the influential Tory MP, Andrew Tyree, who's the chair of the Treasury Select Committee, had attacked the government's growth plans as incoherent
1: and inconsistent. But Osborne hit back. We're cutting income tax bills for over 20 million people and taking over a million of the lowest paid out of tax altogether. At a time of deficit reduction, we're actually increasing capital spending on roads and railways. We're creating a super-fast broadband network for small businesses. We're freezing rates, cutting taxes, stopping new regulations in their tracks. Don't tell me this government isn't going for growth.
2: And in a move that will infuriate those trade unions who were amassing outside, the Chancellor announced plans to make it easier for companies to
1: sack workers. We will double to two years the amount of time you can employ someone before the risk of an unfair dismissal claim. And I can tell you today we are going to introduce for the first time ever a fee for taking a case to a tribunal that litigants only get back if they win.
2: nakedly political speech as we've come to expect from Mr Osborne and he mocked Ed Miliband's call last week for responsible businesses to be rewarded
1: by the tax system Labour's latest policy that there should be two newly created rates of tax is frankly ridiculous one for producers, one for predators one for companies a Labour Chancellor likes, one for companies a Labour Chancellor doesn't like Imagine a Labour Chancellor sitting there in number 11 every morning with a copy of the Financial Times in one hand and the Guardian in the other, weighing up corporate Britain on some homemade scales of justice. What a completely unworkable idea. I think it's the moment, I think it's the moment when, as an opposition, Labour cease to be either a producer or a predator. Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland is here.
2: It was a slow start, but, Johnny, did he get there in the end? I think that might be the briefest standing
3: ovation I've seen at one of these political conferences. I mean, it was a matter of seconds, uh, two or three, and then he himself walked off as if he didn't want to milk the occasion. I wonder if that's because he thought that's part of his image now, that he's this austere, tough Chancellor who's not there to get easy applause, but
2: is there to do a serious job of work. So I thought that might have even been deliberate. Um, And where do you think he's going on the politics of this? I think he picked up on the way he was trying to lump the Tory right and the the Labour left flank together in that speech?
3: Well, I was speaking with uh, a member of the Cabinet last night who said that he uh, thought that Osborne was the shrewdest figure in government, bar none. In other words, shrewder even than the Prime Minister. This is one of his own colleagues talking. And he is all politics, just George Osborne. Um, and that was, I thought, rather ingenious. He lumped together those on the Tory right who were saying, let's have a tax cut, with those coming from Labour conference last week who were saying, let's have a stimulus even to borrow for it. And he said, those are two sides of the same coin, and it's a coin you have to borrow. So sort of shaming people in the room by saying, you're no better than Ed Bulls, uh, and that he thinks will keep that Tory right Right, the tax
2: cutting right quiet for a bit. I thought
3: that was rather uh, deft by him.
2: Um, and what about, um, in broad-brush terms, the criticism he's had this week from Andrew Tyree, very influential Conservative backbencher, saying there is no plan for growth. Once again, he put the deficit centre stage. He had some bits around the edges on growth, though. Do you think there was enough there?
3: He did. I mean, he said this is not a regular economic crisis, this is a debt crisis, it's different, and you can't borrow your way out of it. So sticking to that notion that he's not going to budge on the centrality of debt. Uh, then, though, as if to contradict himself, he did offer some nuggets there on growth, but I thought they were very thin gruel indeed, very unspecific so he said I'm going to do something for science uh, mentioned this specific project here in Manchester didn't actually say what it was going to be and there were a few things like that which I'm sure just on a gut instinct once you submit them to the kind of reality check and actually start looking at the small print they'll slightly turn to dust in your hands uh, they just it sounded very thin to me the growth strategy and that is still where they're weak and he clearly feels that because he made a big point of saying i do get it on growth but uh, just a few bits about green investment bank and all that kind of thing i don't think it washes and uh, the end of vote blue go green Yes, that it really caught, caught, uh, took my breath away, actually, partly because they're in coalition with Lib Dems. He said, as if it was a good thing, we are going to go no slower than our European colleagues on cutting carbon emissions, but certainly no faster either. Applause in the hall. In other words, that's really reversing what has been, I would say, government policy for about 10 years and was central to David Cameron's decontamination of the Tory brand. As you say, vote blue, go green. It was the very first... Uh, message really from David Cameron and here he's now saying we are quite happy to not be a leader on carbon emissions and I think Green Groups and Chris Hewn, uh, Cabinet Minister, Lib Dem, Environment Secretary or Energy Secretary, what's he going to say about that? So I thought there were a few little uh, sort of Molotov cocktails thrown in there in that <laughs> speech and Osborne is still quite a political street fighter and is looking to 2015 and thinking we're not going to be with the Lib Dems forever, I want to shore up my own uh, you know, party
2: faithful and make sure they still see us as conservatives. Jonathan Friedland there. Well, the faithful rushed for the exits pretty quickly after the speech, but we were even quicker and caught a few of them to ask them, is George Osborne's cutting far enough and fast enough for their liking? And in particular, should he have been doing more on taxes?
4: I thought it was very good, very easy to understand. Um, Very much the policies that we've been, been putting forward for some time, and we just hope that he can deliver. I thought it was an excellent speech, actually. What what did
2: you like about it?
4: Uh, I liked the the bit about business and trying to get, you know, um, small businesses going again, making tax system better for business.
0: I am here
4: representing
0: uh, Children's Day Nurseries, private and voluntary day nurseries. I'm chief executive of National Day Nurseries Association. And uh, one of the things, well, I think the speech has some very positive things, but one of the things I really wanted to know more about is actually exactly how and what kind of support the small and medium-sized businesses are going to to get from the government, particularly in relation to childcare, because at the moment they're not actually getting any support at all in terms of business support.
2: So you felt it was a bit vague on some of the detail?
0: I think so, yes.
4: Yeah, Peter Crew, Western Super Mayor. I thought George delivered a very good, well-balanced speech. I think much of what he's doing is very good, especially about uh, where you can go to a tribunal when you've been working for a year. Now it's two years. I've seen this happen, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. that's something that business needs. needs confidence so they can take on people, knowing that for at least two years, if there is a problem, they're okay because I think people just, just try it on for the sake of it.
2: And the and idea of people having to pay a fee to take an unfair dismissal
4: case as well. Excellent, excellent. And quite rightly, there will always be genuine cases, and those genuine cases will get the money back if they win. So I think that makes sense.
2: That's regulation, but the other half of the business growth stuff's always tax. Would you like to see a bit more red meat there?
4: I think that's all, it's always going to be difficult. It always will be difficult at the moment. Uh, I just think we have to help business any way we can. And that mainly is freeing up the, the ability to get money, as opposed to the tax side. To the bank. It's the same with council tax. It, it, it is very difficult at the moment. Being a councillor, obviously, I know the difficulty we're having uh, when you can't increase council tax and you're still trying to cut spending. Not an easy mix at the moment.
2: As a councillor, could you just put me right on one thing? This business of the council tax is going to be frozen again next year. I'm almost sure that he said that already. I think he said in the manifesto he was going to freeze council tax for two years and not just one.
4: Yes, but you still have to keep reminding people that that's what it's it's all about. Doing it once, doing it twice. said originally until 2013 that's likely to be the case. The bit that's added is giving support to councils that do it with some more grant. I would assume through the grant system.
2: Well, the Chancellor said that his party is for small businesses if it's for anyone. I caught up with Mike Cherry of the Federation of Small Businesses and asked him if
5: he welcomed the announcements. Um, I think one of the things that we do welcome from the Chancellor's speech today is the fact that the timescale for employees to bring... Unfair dismissal claims has indeed been extended from 12 months to 24 months. That's been long trawled as being something that the government were probably going to announce, and it's certainly to be welcomed by the majority of small businesses. This doesn't affect, and quite rightly so, uh, any employee's uh, opportunity to uh, take an employer to tribunal for discrimination, and I think you know, that is understood and needs to be in there. Even so, he felt the Chancellor could have gone further. There's an absolutely key issue that we feel that they have got wrong at the moment, and that is this emphasis of national insurance contribution holidays for start-ups uh, with up to 10 employees. That clearly hasn't delivered what the government was expecting it to we put forward back in March, uh, the fact that we uh, were advocating that that should be extended to all small businesses across the whole of the UK. They have the capacity to actually uh, take on one or two more employees and they should actually get the support that that deserves. So very, very strong in recommending that the government actually delivers on that one. Well, there was one passage in George Osborne's speech that prompted particular
2: scratching of heads, calling for something called credit easing. He built it as a way to get money flowing to small businesses, but no-one seemed particularly sure how it would work. Tim Lernig, the chief economist of the Liberal Democrat-leaning think tank Centre Forum, was sceptical when asked him if and how it might work.
0: Well, who knows? We don't know for sure. It could be that the government is now going to lend money directly to small firms, but I'd be surprised if they were really going to do that to any extent. It would be very expensive if they were, and there'd always be the danger that lots of people would come along to try and scam the government and not pay it back. So I assume it's quantitative easing with a few bells and whistles on, But the previous quantitative easing worked reasonably well for firms, so I suspect it's plain vanilla quantitative easing with a very small number of sprinkles on the top.
2: He compared Osborne this week with Vince Cable's gloomy address to the Lib Dems two weeks ago.
0: The tone was different, but the content was the same. I mean, he promised us calm, uh, calm waters at the end, but that was the best he was prepared to promise us. There wasn't much sun... And overall, it's quite clear the economy is not where they'd hoped or expected it would be a year ago and, frankly, not where they want it to be. There was no indication of when he thought growth would return. And it was kind of, oh, dear, I've got to make a speech. I wish I didn't. Hopefully I'll have something to say next year that will please the crowd. George Osborne is due to spell out a fuller vision of his growth strategy
2: in November. But Andrew Tyree, who's the Treasury Select Committee Chair, didn't seem to want to wait until then in order to pass judgment, having been quoted earlier this week in calling the current growth plan incoherent. Naturally, I wanted to catch up with him and ask him what he'd heard today. No? Thank you very much
0: Sorry.
2: So he didn't want to talk. But after being chased around by the BBC and the Prime Minister's advisers, eventually he said this.
6: Well, I'm greatly encouraged by this speech and particularly by the emphasis on making sure that we protect people's living standards and a relentless
7: drive to secure growth in the economy. And I was also uh, pleased by the announcements that were
2: made to reform the labour market, get it working better so that people can take on more staff. So the Chancellor can chalk up another convert to his worldview. But along with efforts to find ways to get the economy growing again, some MPs have been looking back to the origins of the crisis. Two of them have produced a book called Masters of Nothing. Nadim Zahawi and Matthew Hancock spoke to The Guardian's Michael White. We're
7: here in a corner of the conference complex, uh, a quiet corner with Matthew Hancock and Nadim Sahawi. Both of them are new class of 2010 members of parliament, both of them in different careers, well steeped in money matters. But more unusual than that, they have collaborated, yes, two MPs collaborating, writing a rather interesting book, Masters of Nothing. It's well written and uh, they seem to know what they're talking about. Gentlemen, tell us what's different in terms of insights from your book about the great crash, Masters of the Universe down to Masters of Nothing, which is covering ground different from, let's say, Michael Lewis's The Big Short, or several of what are now dozens of books written about this
8: great financial disaster. What's your unique selling point? The idea stemmed from Matt um, approaching me about, I think, January um, of this year saying, look, I've got this idea about examining the crash. Lots of books have been written about the crash, but no-one's really looked at the human behaviour because that should be the starting point for politicians, for legislators, for civil servants to begin to think about, well, what, what do we do about it? And so where we're different is we've come to it from, from actually understanding human behavior before sort of trying to think about, well, you know, what is government's position in all this? Okay, that was uh, Nadim Sahawi talking
7: uh, then. Matt Hancock, you're saying, in effect, uh, that, to use the old Greek word, uh, hubris leading uh, to nemesis, that of the few people who warned against this, Dr. Doom, uh, Rabini, uh, uh, and uh, Andrew Large, the deputy uh, governor of the Bank of England, all ignored in 2005, 56 I might add, I don't think it's in your book, Vince Cable, got a credible record on this, was ignored. What is it? Uh, in terms of group behaviour, herd behaviour, and I think you say at some point male behaviour, which led us to this extraordinary pass.
6: One of the reasons that the book is different from all the other descriptions of the crash is that it isn't a narrative of, you know, this is what happened um, in order of events. Um, Rather, we've taken a step back to ask about the behaviour behind it. And what is fascinating is that the... The psychology literature very clearly talks about the sort of groupthink that we saw, and the most important part of that groupthink, um, which is standard from the scientific literature, is that those who stand outside the group's way of thinking are ostracised, lampooned and attacked and And this happens time and time again, so there was you know, the large a large group of people who thought that the good times would never end, and they were they were led in that by the authorities and Anybody who complained that the good times would indeed end not only was disagreed with but disagreed with in, and, and, and shunned in a pretty disrespectful way.
7: That's pretty common, isn't it? It's odd in all sorts of fields. I'm tempted to say the word Europe about this, but let's not be distracted. Uh, as uh, Nadim Sahawi, we have this, in a political sense, very odd paradox. I was vaguely aware of it at the time, but not properly aware of it, that Alan Greenspan, who ran the US Federal Reserve Bank for 17 uh, years, was it a long time, great hero of the hour, uh, and he had an acolyte and admirer, man who got him to come, open, uh, come and open the refurbished treasury in Whitehall, uh, Gordon Brown, of course, the British Chancellor for, for 10 years. How did that unlikely partnership sustain itself? Because looking back on it,
8: it was even odder than you said it was at the time. Well, I think you know, one of the things we, we, we examined in the book at the time is, is um, again, what Matt was referring to, is the idea of the, of the sort of the, the fools in the corner. And, I tell you what I think happened is those two men coming from very different backgrounds dovetailed in the one place where they thought, you know, this bubble is an ever-expanding one. Uh, Gordon... No no more boom and bust. Precisely. Gordon had, had... Convinced himself, and actually frighteningly convinced some of the young Turks around him, like Ed Balls, that you know he's abolished boom and bust. This bubble will continue to expand. This is a good thing. Light touch regulation is the right way forward on this because this is endless amounts of money that he can essentially then give to his ministers to spend whichever way they like. You know, it was the sort of <laughs> the utopia of <laughs> economics, which was blatantly not true.
7: The credit bubble was in effect regarded as, as increased wealth. It was re- an act of wealth creation rather than a house price bubble and a, a credit credit bubble. I have to say, Matt Hancock, you worked for George Osborne during this period, former bank official as you are. You weren't crying that, neither you nor the Shadow Chancellor, nor George Osborne's predecessors, you were saying more like touch regulation at the time, Quite late into the crisis, I think you turned in about November two thousand and eight, uh, if I remember rightly, so in a way, you have to put your hands
6: up too. I think this criticism is superficial. The conservatives did make warnings, for instance, they went into the two thousand and five election, calling for borrowing to be lower and spending to be um, lower state, than under labor yes, yeah. a- and also they at the time of the of taking away the Bank of England's power to regulate levels of debt. Um, This was 1997. In 1997, there was a very... tripartite reform. Exactly. When Brown was pushing through his tripartite reform, um, they explained very clearly why they thought that that was a problem. Um, But one of the things that we talk about in the book is how in these bubbles, and especially very long bubbles timing really matters. So if you're in the stock market, there's several examples of people who knew that it was a problem, bet against it, but then lost their shirts because the bubble kept going up. There's a cracking example of Tony Dye who complained that the bubble was going to burst bet against the stock market bubble the dot-com bubble and lost his job in um, january 2000 to see the bubble burst in february 2000 and him be uh, proved right did he get his job back he he started his own fund after that Um, but the and so it and so timing is is important as well and in the markets you've got to be you know you've got to be right but you've got to be right at the right time as well
7: Now, uh, the future, strenuous efforts over the last three years by uh, both uh, commercial and international uh, uh, regulatory uh, uh, organisations to get it right and prevent it happening again. We're in a big debate at the moment in Britain about the Vickers report. The European Commission has come up with this uh, controversial proposal about a Tobin tax to try and uh, uh, calm down uh, uh, short-term speculations on the market. A lot of criticism of that. Are we remotely moving in the right direction regardless of the detail, devil in the detail?
8: Or are we still missing the big picture, the elephant in the room? No. Well, I think obviously the devil is in, in, in the detail, but I think, as we called in the book, that you know, it cannot be right f- for banks, universal banks, that hold our deposits, retail banking, are able then to sort of move that and gamble it yeah. on the investment bank side. So the ring fencing is something that we, we, we absolutely support. Um, that's what George Osborne is, is, is backing Vickers over. Um, absolutely, um, I think it's 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 something that needs to happen. is beginning to happen anyway. You look at the way the markets are beginning to price that risk in other countries' banks, whether the French banks or elsewhere. They actually essentially, are, the markets are saying, look, you know, you guys are at the moment exposed, and therefore we're going to price that in, and so we're better off leading that, acting on it. You know, London is still the most important financial market in the world. If it's to remain so, we do need to actually act on these things. On Tobin, I would say to you that needs a global solution because you will see that that trade go elsewhere if we try and do it piecemeal in Europe.
7: Matt uh, Hancock. Uh I suppose one might say, well, uh, the markets are uh, overpricing risk at the moment as they underpriced them for years. The regulatory agencies, Moody's Standards and Poor's, which were happily to give AAA ratings to all sorts of rubbish a few years ago, are now uh, even downgrading the United States uh, government debt an extraordinary state of affairs from AAA. Uh, the stable doors closed, horses bolting.
6: Well, it's vital that the that regulation around this is counter cyclical that because you know if you understand human nature and we think that it's vital to do that to try to run the economy well um, not only how people behave as individuals but how they behave as groups Mm. which can often be different the market is going to push in a cyclical way and now we know that people are very worried about um, risk in a way that they probably weren't worried enough about it in the, bo- in the boom. So
7: we're and overreacting in both directions. Uh, well,
6: that's what groups do. Well, that's what human be- happens in human behaviour. You know, we can't end bubbles. They will always exist. Mm. But what we need to do is try to mitigate against them, both on the upside mm. and now on the downside. And I think one of the most important but underreported reforms of the government is to introduce what's called a financial policy committee at the bank um, to allow the bank to um, adjust how it regulates the banks, both in good times and in bad, to try to smooth this, um, what is a natural cycle of uh, fear and exuberance among, in markets.
7: There was a big bank failing, BCCI, in the early 90s, I seem to remember, and when the bank was doing the regulation, Brown took away from it is now heading back its way, it hadn't distinguished itself particularly uh, over that one. Why should it be, in the famous phrase of
6: econo- economics, different this time? Well, I don't think that we can look for a world in which no bank ever fails. And if we take the example of Bearings, another failure that um, the Bank of England at the time was blamed for, here was a bank that collapsed, there wasn't a systemic knock-on consequence the directors lost their jobs, the guy at the heart of the losses that led to the collapse of the bank went to prison, Leeson. Leeson. Now we would see this as a regulatory success, not a failure, because um, there were no rewards for failure in Baring's Bank. It was dealt with over the weekend very effectively. So, um, I think you
7: said in your book it was the right size of failure. <laughs> they were
6: lucky with that one. Uh, with, after layman's, it was um, everyone in the lifeboats, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But the key point is that, you know, if you try to design a system where no bank will ever fail, then the banks will recognize that and they'll start to behave knowing that they're never going to fail. So actually, you know, a a well, an orderly um, failure from time to time of a bank that really screws up is not a bad thing.
7: Last question. Um, Eurozone crisis. uh, Staggering to get a political uh, handle on this ...disaster which has the capacity to hurt us all very badly... ...as the Chancellor said um, in his speech here this week... ...if you were able to wave a magic wand...
8: ...what would you do that they're not yet doing? Have a clear strategy and stick to it.
7: Is that possible with uh, 17 uh, member governments of the Eurozone... ...and the enormous asymmetry of power between the Germans, say... ...and uh, small Eastern European members?
8: As the pain increases... ...as the punishment from the markets increases they will have to come down to actually sitting down, dealing with some home truths, dealing with fiscal integration, i.e. You know, Germany having more say on, over the budgets of, of what the other
7: for a British government to be, to be urging fiscal integration on the eurozone. We didn't
8: expect to be here, did we? Well, we want them to succeed. Yes, you know, this understood. is 40% of yeah, our export yeah. market. We want them to, to, to do well. We don't want them to fail. No. But they've got to deal with these home truths. Have a clear strategy. One of the real advantages of having the low interest rates that we have here, is the coalition government came in and said, here is our strategy for dealing with the debt, and we're sticking to it. That is something that, on a sort of much bigger scale, is what needs to happen in the
6: Eurozone. I think one of the things that's rumbling away underneath the surface of this conference is a, a quiet confidence in the Conservative Party that we got it right on the euro. We predicted very clearly that Chuck you need. Brown
7: got it right too, didn't he? You well, never he, give him any credit for the
6: one thing you think he got right. He didn't say much at the time, but it was very clearly articulated that if you have a monetary union, you need a fiscal union. That's the main reason why, that unites United Tories against going into the euro, and it's proved tr- right. But there's no point in having Schadenfreude about it because the economic consequences for us of the situation they're in are grave
7: are not a bit frightened at three o'clock in the morning about the uh, lack of demand in the economy and the shrinking monetary base and other uh, very discouraging um, uh, symptoms which are around. Well,
8: the purchasing managers index yesterday was actually quite pleasing. You know, I look at my own constituency. I know it's anecdotal, but, you know, West Midlands, manufacturing base, automotive, they're all growing. They're doing really well. You know, we've got... Jaguar Land Rover investing in an engine factory in the UK. Now, why would you put an engine factory in the UK and not put it in Asia or in India? The reason being is actually their customers, the Chinese you know, new affluent, are buying £60,000 Range Rovers. They want not just the outside to be made in the UK, but the actual engine to be made in the UK. So we have a real opportunity to rebalance the economy and actually get growth back in the economy. And the Purchasing Managers Index is a, is a great indicator that things are not perfect but they're moving in the right direction let's end on a
7: positive note unless you want to be more positive
8: well
6: i think that the message very clearly from the chancellor's speech it was yes it's tough and yes we have to accept we're in a debt crisis but there are things we can do and he set out some of those things that we can do
2: michael white there with nadim sahawi and matthew hancock and their book masters of nothing is out now published by bite back Well, that's all for this week. You can find out more on the Conservative Party's conference at our website, guardian.co.uk forward slash politics. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Tom Clark, and thanks very much for listening.
0: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward
6: slash audio.